We're returning to the book of Acts, and this morning we'll look at Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. Acts 8, or excuse me, Acts 8, Acts 6, verses 8 to 15. Bob, is there any way to turn down the speakers? It's vibrating up there. I don't know if other people can hear it, but it's reverberating in my in my head. Some people are shaking their head. They're hearing it too. Okay, how's that? Is everybody able to hear me? Okay. There we go. Okay, thank you. Okay, Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it is called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia, And Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for the example of Stephen. We thank you for his godliness. We thank you for his grace. Help us to learn from His example. May He inspire us. And may You, by Your Spirit, help us to imitate Him and walk in the way that He walked. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have been watching any of the Olympics lately and paying attention to the strict diet and discipline that some of the athletes submit themselves to, you may have a greater appreciation of Paul's illustration in 1 Corinthians 9. You can turn there if you like. In 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 24, this is what Paul says. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises Self-control in all things. Um, One of the commercials about the Olympics that I found fascinating was one of the athletes said, I haven't had dessert in two years. Another athlete said, you know that novel that everybody has read? I haven't read it. Another athlete said, you know that television show that everybody's talking about? Well, I haven't seen it. I've been a little busy. Now, what is the purpose of this radical discipline? Paul goes on to say, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. By the way, the word wreath here might be translated crown in your translation, depending on which one you have. The Greek word for wreath or crown is stephanos. Stephanos. 
And Paul goes on and he says, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The Greeks had two great athletic festivals, the Olympic Games and the Isthmian Games. Familiarity with these games provided Paul with a parallel to the Christian life. He said, if Olympic athletes exercise self-control and discipline, how much more should we Christians exercise self-control and discipline? And why do these athletes submit themselves to such rigorous discipline? They do it for a Stephanos, a crown, or if Paul were writing today, he would say a gold, silver, or bronze medal that is only temporary or perishable. As beautiful as that metal may look around your neck or hanging on the wall, it will not last forever. But we do it to receive a gold medal or a crown, if you will, that is imperishable or eternal. It will last forever. So what are we striving for? The Stephanus, the crown that lasts forever. Turning ahead to 2 Corinthians, if you have your Bible open, I want us to see what Paul says in his very last letter just prior to his death. And this is what he writes in 2 Timothy 4, beginning at verse 6. He tells Timothy, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. By departure here, he is talking about departure from this world. He is about to die. And then he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. You see how he goes back to the metaphors of running and boxing. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have run the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown, and it's the same Greek word, Stephanus of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. What is Paul saying? I have finished the race. The finish line is at hand. And there is waiting for me at the finish line the crown of of righteousness. And then notice that he employs another Olympic illustration. He says, which the Lord will award to me on that day. Did you know that as Christians, there is coming a day when God will award us. When He will see how we have run, how we have fought, and He will give us rewards. It's one of the things that should encourage us to live the Christian life. Even when we're suffering. Jesus said we should rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. So we should run the race, even if it's hard, even if it's difficult, knowing that there are rewards waiting for us. Now, I draw your attention to all these Olympic analogies by Paul and our pursuit of the crown because our passage this morning is about a man named Stephen. But you need to know that Stephen is his English name. 
In the Greek translation, it is Stephanus. His name is Crown. And I find it fascinating that his parents, even though we don't know much about him, but his parents named him Crown. They named him after the Olympic crown that the winners were awarded. Uh, Perhaps they wanted Stephen to live up to his name. They wanted him to know we're calling you Crown because we want you to be a success. And his parents would not be disappointed. If Michael Phelps, the award-winning Olympic swimmer, is to be admired, because he's received more Olympic medals than anybody else in history, uh, Stephen Stephanus is to be much more admired because of what he achieved. By the way, let me just say in passing that kids need heroes. And I would tell you that heroes is an inescapable category. What do I mean by that? In other words, it's not optional. Your kids will have heroes. By the way, you and I have heroes as well. You and I have people that we look up to, that we admire, and that we even try to imitate. Maybe it's in different areas. Uh, But this is how God has created us. And this is why the author of Hebrews says, uh, consider your leaders and the outcome of their faith and imitate their faith. And Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And elders of the church are to be examples to the flock. And I can tell you that we elders find that very humbling to realize that we're to be examples to the flock, but we need examples, and Stephen is an excellent example. Now, he's an example for many reasons, but as we go through this passage, we are going to see that he's a great example because his life, his ministry, and his death provide a perfect parallel to the life, ministry, and death of Jesus. And Luke has intentionally, no doubt, written this account to help us to see that Luke really is, or excuse me, that Stephen really is Christ-like in his life. And let me draw your attention to five parallels this morning between Stephen and Jesus. First of all, we see that there's a connection in how they lived. Verse 8, and Stephen, full of grace. That's the first thing we're told right there. Stephen was full of grace. And if you'll remember our series in the Gospel of John, I know it's been a while, but in John 1.14 we were told, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. So here's Stephen, full of grace, which reminds us of Jesus who was full of grace. I read one commentator on this and he said, Stephen was full of grace. He was a gracious man. But grace means much more than being gracious. It certainly includes that and it is not less than that. But grace is what saves us. It's what sanctifies us. It's what strengthens us to live the Christian life. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul said, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Then he says something pretty bold. 
He says, by the grace of God, I worked harder than all of them. Talking about the other apostles. And it sounds like he's bragging. But then he says, yet it wasn't I, but the grace of God that was with me. So because of the grace of God in Paul's life, he says, I was able to work harder than all the other apostles. So Stephen is full of grace, which explains everything that's about to take place. How was he able to do it? And the answer is he was able to do it because of the grace of God. Luke goes on and he says, not only was he full of grace, but he was full of power. Matter of fact, he was full of so much power that he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Put simply, so even the kids can understand it, Stephen performed miracles. Now that should grab our attention. Up to this point, only Jesus and the apostles are said to have performed miracles, wonders, and signs. Turning back to Acts 2, in verse 22, Peter said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, by mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, because you saw them. And then in Acts 4.30, we saw the early church praying and they asked God to stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they asked that more miracles would take place. And then in 5.12 we read, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. So Jesus did miracles. The apostles did miracles. And now we read about Stephen, an exception to the rule, if you will, also performing miracles. Because he's full of grace. Because he's full of power. And we say, wow, he's just like Jesus. Just like the apostles. So Stephen is elevated right away because of his grace, because of the power that's taking place in his life. Now, we also see a parallel between Stephen and Jesus by the opposition that takes place. Verse 9, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, of those of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. John Stott wrote, In spite of the great ministry that he had, in spite of the great miracles that he was doing among the people, probably healing them, perhaps casting out demons. In spite of that, there was opposition against him. I would say it a little different. I would say because of his great ministry, there was opposition. Wherever God uses a man mightily, you can count on there being opposition. Not in spite of the great ministry, but because of the great ministry. Because people are jealous, people are envious, and they don't like it. So they come against him and there's great opposition. What does verse 10 say? But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which he was speaking. And again, that reminds us of Jesus. Uh, again and again, people tried to come at Jesus and dispute with him, but they lost. This is what we read in Matthew 22. 
In Matthew 22.15, we read, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Him in His talk. So they're going to dispute with Jesus and they think maybe they can trip Jesus up. So they ask Him a question about taxes. That's always a good place to begin, right? <laughs> uh, watch politics on the news. Tell us, what's your view on taxes? And no matter how you answer, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. You're going to make somebody mad. There is just no good answer that you can give to that question. But Jesus gives a good answer. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God the things that belong to God. Ah, got away. They don't give up 23. The same day, Sadducees came to Him to say there is no resurrection and they asked Him a question and I won't go into that. And then dropping down to 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and then one of them, a lawyer, asked them a question. If you want to ask a difficult question, hire a lawyer. So they hire one of these guns to come at Jesus to come up with a good question. They ask him about the greatest commandment and he gives a good answer to that. And then in 41, Jesus turns the table and he asks them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. That's easy. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David called him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. So again and again, they try to dispute with Jesus. It doesn't work. He has a question for them and he silences them. We look at Stephen. They try to dispute with Stephen. Same thing happens. They don't have an answer. Stephen silences them. So then what happens? Well, you have to have false witnesses stirred up. That's what happened with Jesus. That's what happens with Stephen. Verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Uh, instigated men perhaps means through bribery. Uh, I don't know for sure. I'm not going to be dogmatic, but perhaps they paid some men to stir up the people. And isn't that what happened with Jesus? Uh, the people were all stirred up so that they cried out for His blood. They cried out that He would be crucified. Verse 12, And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon Him and seized Him and brought Him before the council. Again, notice all the parallels here. Stirred up the people, seized Him, arrested Him. Isn't that what they did to Jesus? And then what did they do to Jesus? They brought Jesus before the council to stand trial, right? And then here's Stephen. He sees, he's arrested, and he's brought before the same council that Jesus stood before. And Stephen will probably get the same verdict. He will probably get the same kind of quote-unquote justice. And notice the charges brought against him, 13. And they set up false witnesses. Same thing happened to Jesus, by the way. They brought false witnesses against him who said, This man never ceases to speak words against his holy place and the law, 
For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And if we turn back to Matthew 26, again, we see the parallels. Matthew 26:59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put Him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forth. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. But Jesus was talking about the temple of His body. Now, perhaps there is some truth to what Stephen was saying. Because Jesus not only talked about destroy this temple, my body, and I'll raise it up in three days. But Jesus also predicted in the Olivet Discourse that He would destroy the literal temple that was standing and He would replace it. So in Matthew 24, when the disciples look at the temple and they're impressed by the beautiful building, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left upon another. And then He says, all these things will happen in this generation. And sure enough, in A.D. 70, the Romans came. The temple was destroyed. And some of the customs of Moses were changed. I would say, fulfilled. So that the whole sacrificial system was done away with. Because Jesus was the final sacrifice fulfilling the whole sacrificial system. And now, there wasn't a need of a physical temple for worship. We now worship God through Jesus who is the temple, and we, being connected to Christ, are a part of that temple as well. So perhaps there's some truth to what Stephen was saying. The temple would be destroyed. The customs of Moses would be changed. Of course, they misunderstood that, but they used that to bring false testimony against Stephen so that they could put him to death. And it's also interesting that they accused Stephen of blasphemy, they also accused Jesus of blasphemy. And then isn't it interesting at the end in verse 15, Luke adds this parenthetical thought. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Isn't that something? Now again, I don't I don't want to be dogmatic here, but let's try to understand what's taking place here. His face was like the face of an angel. What what does that mean? I think it means that glory was emanating from the face of Stephen. Angels have faces that emanate with glory. And why do they emanate with glory? Because they live in the presence of God. And what happens when you linger in the presence of God? Your face shines. Remember Moses? He went up on the mountain. He met with God for 40 days. And then he came down from the mountain. And what were we told about his face? It shone. And a matter of fact, it shone so brightly with the glory of God that he had to put a veil over his face because it was too bright for the Israelites and they couldn't look upon him. There are only two people in the Bible that were told their face shone with glory. 
One example is Moses that I just mentioned. The other example is Jesus Christ. It's a mount of transfiguration. We're told that he was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. And his face shone brightly. The only difference is the glory that came from Christ wasn't a reflected glory. It was coming from inside Jesus because he's God. But Moses reflected glory and one other man reflected glory that we're told of, I believe, Stephen. His face shone like an angel. Perhaps because he's living in the presence of God. And a little later, we'll see that he sees the glory of God. He sees Jesus Christ. And perhaps because of that, he is radiating that. And they all see it. Visible, tangible. Luke's very clear. All who sat at the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. He looked like Jesus Christ. He looked like an angel. And then one other parallel, and I want to jump ahead, but this is an important one too. Stephen not only parallels Jesus in his life and his ministry, but in his death. This is what we see in Acts 7, verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, this, this is in the very process of being stoned to death. Stephen is being pelted, not with pebbles, but with big boulders. He's being stoned to death. And he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus' last words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen saying something very similar. And then, verse 60, and falling to his knees, he cried out in a loud voice, and he's probably falling to his knees because of what the rocks are doing to him. He's physically forced to the ground. But what does he say? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Absolutely astounding. And again, Luke is being intentional. He knows that we are reading this and we are going, wow! Amazing that a man could say that as he's being stoned to death. He is dying just like Jesus died. He's saying the same thing that Jesus said when He died. How could He ask for forgiveness? He doesn't cry out for their blood. He doesn't seek vengeance. He asked that they would be forgiven. Absolutely astounding. And when He had said this, He fell asleep. I love that. He didn't die. He fell asleep. And then he woke up into the presence of God. This man lived, ministered, and died just like Jesus Christ. Now, here's the question. How could he do that? How could Stephen live such a life? How could he die like this? And we should say, I want to live like this. I want to minister like this. And I want to die like he died. How did he do it? And we were given the answer right at the very beginning of this passage. And Stephen, full of grace. That's how he did it. But let's ask a very practical question. How do you and I become men and women who are full of grace? Well, we avail ourselves to the means of grace. 
Yes, we should pray for God to be gracious to us, but let's also realize that we have a role to play. Uh, sometimes we talk about the spiritual disciplines, uh, going to church on Sunday, spending time in the Word, prayer, fellowship, using our spiritual gifts. Um, all those things are good, and describing the spirit of the disciplines is good. Uh, reformers like to talk about the means of grace. And I like that phrase just a little bit better because it reminds us that what we need is God's grace. The grace does come from God, but God uses means to bring His grace into our lives. And, and just recently, I've been talking to people about this. And yes, we are saved by grace. We're sanctified by grace. And, and God gives us the grace, but He uses means. So when we say, I am saved by the grace of God, we might also say in our testimony, like Carol did last Sunday, and God's grace to me came through a man named Dick who said, you know what? It's not just good enough to be a good person. You need to ask for forgiveness. You need to put your faith in Christ. And God was gracious to Carol through a man who shared with her the gospel. So God uses means to communicate His grace. What are some of the means of grace that He uses? This is what Wayne Grudem writes in his systematic theology. First of all, this is his definition of the means of grace. He says, The means of grace are any activities within the fellowship of the church that God uses to give more grace to Christians. And then he gives a list and he says, this isn't an exhaustive list, but it's a representative list. He says the means of grace to the Christian include teaching of the Word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, prayer for one another, worship, church discipline, giving, spiritual gifts, fellowship, evangelism, personal ministry, to individuals. And he says, these are many of the means that God uses to bring grace into the lives of His people so that they can be strong, so that they can be powerful. And we need to avail ourselves to these means of grace. We need to be disciplined. Um, that is where I like the phrase, uh, the spiritual disciplines. Because it does remind us that we have a part to play. Let's not just think that it's all up to God and, let, and let's wait for God to just strengthen us. No, we are to be disciplined. We are to be self-controlled. We have a role to play in our sanctification. God works alone in our salvation, but then we have a role to play in our sanctification. We have work that He calls us to do. We have a part to play. And that's where the spirit of the disciplines is very important. Availing ourselves to the means of grace. In 1 Timothy 4.8, again, um, I believe Paul is using the Olympic Games as an analogy. But he says, bodily training is of some value. Godliness or training in godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also 
for the life to come. So yes, there is some value in bodily training and that physical discipline, but spiritual discipline, discipline for godliness has value not only in this life, but also in the life to come. Stephen was full of grace. And it's fascinating, I think also, that he grew in grace. Stephen was raised up as a deacon. He was serving on tables. But then we see Stephen full of grace, performing miracles, witnessing. It seems that Stephen just continued to grow as a Christian. He became more and more powerful, more and more influential because the grace of God grew in his life. And I think a great question that we should ask ourselves is, is God's grace growing in my life? Am I growing as a Christian? Am I becoming stronger and stronger as a Christian? Or if I'm honest, do I find myself becoming weaker and weaker? And we're either going one way or the other. But let's remember that God has provided the means of grace so that we can grow, so that we can be strong as a Christian, so that we can live, minister, and die as He's calling us to. Let's close in prayer. Father, again, we thank You for the example of Stephen. We thank You for Your grace in his life. Father, thank You for how He challenges us. Father, I pray that we all look at Stephen and say, I want to be like that. I want to be full of grace. I want to be full of power. I want my life to reflect Christ. I want to die forgiving people, not being bitter. Father, thank You for the means of grace that You have provided for Your people. Father, forgive us for neglecting the means of grace that are right in front of us. Father, help us to avail ourselves to all the means of grace that are for us. Father, help us to train ourselves for godliness. Father, we should be shamed by the Olympic athletes. They train and they work so hard for a perishable crown. We should train ourselves and work hard because we are working towards an imperishable crown that will last forever. Father, help us to run this race of faith well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.